We're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 this morning. At the risk of dating myself somewhat, um, imagine if Jesus was on Oprah. Uh, for those of you who are younger, younger you can imagine the, the Ellen DeGeneres show or something like that. But we'll go with Oprah because she's so iconic, right? Oprah has heard about this young handyman, um, this callous-handed tradesman, we'll call him Jesus, that has been doing miracles, reportedly. And so she has him on her show, and along with Jesus, she's got a panel of religious experts, maybe a chaplain from a place like Harvard, and a theologian from a big seminary, and a megachurch pastor, some people like that on her panel. And the house is packed that day. Oprah's audience, you know, they love anything mysterious or controversial. And, and so they've come in droves hoping to catch something uh, and see something exciting today. Oprah starts asking Jesus about himself and about his story. She's curious to find out how he went from common tradesman to growing religious celebrity and what this whole miracle thing is about. She also is secretly relishing seeing how Jesus is going to handle the grilling that he's sure to get from the panel. It'll be fun to see how this common blue-collar guy in blue jeans will handle the elite, sophisticated group on the panel. Jesus starts telling Oprah and her audience that we're living in crucial, pivotal days, that God is doing a new thing in the world. It's arriving, and that Jesus is announcing it. Well, just as people's eyebrows start to raise and, and they're shifting uncomfortably in their seats, there's a commotion off stage, off camera. Some banging, some, something heavy sounds like it's falling. Oprah's wondering what's going on. It's supposed to be all quiet on the set, right? She tries to keep her composure, to keep her focus on her guest, Jesus, when who comes rolling onto the stage but a guy in a wheelchair pushed by several friends. He's clearly paralyzed. They, of course, couldn't get him in the back door, given the crowds, um, but they managed to sneak him around a side entrance, which had been left ajar, and somehow overcome some obstacles, evade some security to get him to Jesus. And here they are with cameras rolling on stage. The security guards have been trailing, trying to catch up. But now that the intruders are on stage, the guards aren't sure if they should step in with the cameras on. Oprah's trying to think quickly what to do. She's calculating which strategy will prove to have the greatest entertainment value and boost her ratings, right? And, and in that moment of pause, Jesus is the first to step in and take action. Realizing the faith of the intruders, he says to the man in the wheelchair, Son, your sins are forgiven. There's a gasp. You could hear a pin drop. Oprah gasps. She's not even sure she believes in sins. The religious panel fidget. They exchange looks. Oprah turns to them, but before she can invite them to respond, Jesus speaks again to the religious panel this time. He says, I know what you're thinking. Why does this guy talk like this? 
How offensive, how intolerant, how inappropriate, how quaint and old-fashioned, but not in a good way. Who am I to claim this poor man in the wheelchair has sinned? And who am I to think I have the right to forgive him? Which is easier, this plucky young blue-collar worker asks these erudite scholars and religious VIPs, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up out of your wheelchair and walk. The, the panel shrugs their shoulders. They're a little bit uncomfortable that Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. Anyone could say, your sins are forgiven. Not that anyone in their right mind would, but, but if you say to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, everyone will know in an instant whether you're a fraud or a miracle worker. Then Jesus says something utterly stunning and bold and provocative. Jesus. <laughs> he says, but I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says to the man right there in front of everyone, I tell you, get up, fold up your wheelchair and go home. And the man got up and he folded And as you can imagine, the crowd went wild. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. They had come hoping upon hope to see something amazing like this, and they'd gotten to see it live right before their very eyes. They said, we've never seen anything like this. Well, that's not exactly how it happened, right? <laughs> so actually, I'd like to ask you a question and invite you to talk uh, about it together with a few people near you, or if you're on Zoom, you can talk to about it with the other people on Zoom. And the question is, in what ways is the story I just told different from how it actually happened according to Mark's gospel? And how is it the same? And let me read Mark's account again of the story before we do that. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above. By digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what, uh, or that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up. He took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. 
This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So in what ways is that different from the story the way I told it? And in what ways is it similar? I'm just going to give you a few minutes, talk on Zoom, talk to the people next to you, and talk about some of the similarities and differences. Then we'll continue. And Capernaum was a small village, so for a traveling preacher to be in town, and one who could do miracles no less, this was the talk of the town. This was huge entertainment. You know, maybe nothing like this had happened for years. Enough so that not only does a large, curious crowd form, but the religious experts, the local elites, have shown up to check it out. To check out this simple tradesman who was now preaching and reputedly doing miracles. And notice that the focus of this story is the interaction between Jesus and the religious elites. They're called teachers of the law or scribes, depending on your translation, and they were the experts. They were the respected ones, the important ones in Jewish religion at that time. And they're there, no no doubt, to check out Jesus to see if he's credible or if he's a deceiver. And Jesus confronts them head on. He, he calls them out, actually, a, a, after he tells uh, the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. These scribes aren't saying anything, but somehow Jesus knows what they're thinking. And Jesus objects to it proactively before they can even say anything out loud. He pushes the issue with them. They're thinking about Jesus. Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the fact that they think this is no surprise. I mean, wouldn't you think this? After all, your whole religious life, uh, your whole uh, life and and experience and training, um, your whole knowledge of the Bible says that only God can forgive sins. If we've sinned, the Bible tells us to go to the temple at that time. Make a sacrifice there, and then God will forgive your sins. Which, of course, gave a lot of power to those who ran the temple. For those of us who have religious authority, it gives us access to a lot of power. If we use guilt as a means of power, if we hold people's sins and worthiness over their unworthiness over their heads, and they have to come to us and they have to listen to us to get relief from that guilt. That's what sparked the Protestant Reformation. The religious hierarchy at that time, John Tetzel in particular, was using guilt to raise money. Uh, through the sale of something called indulgences. You're guilty, but if you give us money, if you give money to the church, we'll make sure God forgives you or forgives those you love. And um, a young German monk, Martin Luther, objected to this, this misuse of authority, and it helped to spark the Reformation. But the temptation is still there for religious people, for pastors, and for everyday church people to use guilt of others, to use the sin of others as a way to make them listen to us or come to us or do what we want them to do so that they can find forgiveness from their guilt. But Jesus will have none of it. 
He says, in effect, you don't need the temple to be forgiven anymore. Not anymore. Not now that I'm here. You don't need the religious experts, the elites. You don't need religion. You don't need church or church people to help you come to God for forgiveness. I can just forgive you right now. Now, on the one hand, good for Jesus for sticking up for the little guy, right? And calling out the religious elites when they were abusing their power. But on the other hand, consider the presumption of this statement. If people have sinned against God, what right does any human being have to go around saying, yeah, you're forgiven? This would be like me going around. I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, but just go with the analogy. Imagine if I was going around saying, your mortgage is canceled. Isn't that great? You don't owe on it anymore. You don't have to pay the bank. And, and you'd be like, that's a really nice thought. But seriously, <laughs> you don't work for my lender. You don't work for my bank. They haven't authorized you to forgive what I owe. How can you cancel my mortgage? Really, Jesus? Only God can forgive sins. You're not God, are you? Ha <laughs> ha. So claiming you can forgive sins is like claiming to be God. It's blasphemy. And so it's no big surprise that the religious experts are, are thinking this way and thinking Jesus is out of line here. They're just thinking the obvious thing. The thing that I would be thinking and that you'd probably be thinking too. And Jesus knows they're thinking this, and he calls them out on it, and he forces the issue with them. He brings it right to the fore. He asks them a question. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say be healed to the paralyzed man, get up and walk? And the answer is that while it's arguably actually harder to forgive sins than to heal someone, it's sure easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say get up and walk because nobody can verify or fact check whether someone's sins are forgiven. So you can say it and nobody knows if it worked or not. Nobody can tell if you're just blowing smoke or if you're authentic. But they can sure tell immediately if a paralyzed man gets up and walks. So it's really, really hard to say get up and walk to a paralyzed man because it would take an absolute miracle to back it up. And Jesus is like, if I can do that hard thing, then by saying get up and walk to the paralyzed man and backing it up with a miracle, then you should believe me when I say the easier thing, your sins are forgiven. You should believe and know that I do have authority on earth to forgive sins. Do you get what Jesus is saying here? What the argument he's making? If I can do this miracle, if I can heal, heal this paralyzed man, that's my proof to you that I have authority, after all, to forgive sins. And then what does Jesus do? He heals the paralyzed man with a word. 
he demonstrates an incredible act of power, God's power, so that this man can get up and walk again. And the man gets up and he picks up his mat and he goes home. And everyone is absolutely amazed. And they're all religious in that culture, so they all say, praise God. They've never seen anything like this. This is awesome. Wait till I go home and tell everyone what I saw. But don't miss the point. The point of this story is verse 10. And it's directed to the religious elite. Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's me, Jesus is saying, I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And that's why the story has been called the gospel in miniature. Because the gospel, which means good news, the gospel in a nutshell is the good news that Jesus came to forgive sins. And this is the first time in the story of Jesus, as Mark is telling the story, that we learn that this is what Jesus came to do. That Jesus came from God, as God, with authority, to forgive our sins. Now, why is having our sins forgiven good news? Why, for starters, was it good news for the paralyzed man? He didn't come to Jesus to get his sins forgiven. He came because he wanted to walk again. That would be good news. Isn't it strange that instead of healing him, Jesus forgives his sins? The the paralytic's four friends go through so much trouble to get him to Jesus. They carry him across town on his mat. Just think how challenging that in itself was. They get to the house where Jesus is. And and by the way, this is possibly either Jesus' house at this time before he went itinerant and didn't have a house. um, Or it's possibly Simon's house. Because what does verse 1 say? It says, Jesus had come home. He was living at this point in Capernaum, maybe in his own house. Maybe he's staying with Simon. If you read chapter 1, that's a possibility. Maybe he's staying somewhere else. The the paralyzed man and his friends get to this house, probably a small house. Houses were small back then. People are crammed in. They're in the doorway. They're spilling out into the street. They're trying to see and hear Jesus. And so the four friends have no way to get their friend to Jesus. And so they're creative, they're enterprising, they're persistent and relentless. Often, an ancient house would have a stairway leading up to the roof. And people back then, they often hung out on their roof like, it, like we would hang out on a deck today. And, and the roofs were wooden beams. They were maybe three feet apart. They'd go from wall to wall. And in between and across those beams, people would put sticks, they would put brush, and then they would pack it all in and hold it together with mud or clay that would then dry and um, it would form a smooth roof. So it was a lot of work, but you could dig between the beams through the mud, you could pull out the sticks, you could make a hole between the beams. It ruined the roof, at least for a while, but these guys are so determined to help their friend and so sure that Jesus can help him that they actually start digging and tearing apart the roof, digging out the mud, pulling branches, making a hole, showering dust and dry mud and sticks down on Jesus. The room is filling with dust. 
and with the people who are crowded into the house until they open up a hole big enough to hoist their friend down. And by this point, everyone is looking up and probably annoyed. Uh, for sure, the owner of the house, right? Um, and Jesus is like, whoa! Not, whoa, look at the damage. Look at the trouble. Look at the problem. Look at the hole in my roof or in Simon's roof. But no, Jesus sees and prioritizes people, not possessions or problems with possessions. He doesn't freak out about the property damage like most of us would. No, what Jesus sees is not the hole in the roof. What he sees is four people whose actions say, we really believe that if we can get our friend to Jesus, he can do something for him. And this is the first time in Mark's gospel that we hear that anyone has faith. And notice faith here isn't what these people say. It's not just what they believe in their hearts. We don't know what they believe, but it's what they do because it's what we do that shows if we really have faith in our hearts. If you want to know if someone has faith, look at the way they live their lives. Look at what they do. Don't listen to what they say. And Jesus realizes these guys must really believe I can help their friends. Because look at the obstacles they overcame to get to me. And so in response to their faith, what does Jesus do? They desperately want for this paralytic to be healed. He desperately wants to be healed. But Jesus doesn't heal the guy. No, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why forgive this guy's sins when obviously what he needs and wants is healing? Why forgive his sins when so many other people Jesus just healed? Why treat this guy differently? I, I can think of at least four reasons. First, the paralyzed man's friends on account of him have just demolished someone's roof. This is property damage and someone's going to have to pay for this. Maybe Jesus is saying, at least in part, don't worry, you're forgiven about the roof. Second, perhaps Jesus discerns that there's some sort of sin behind this man's paralysis. We now understand better through modern psychology that people have, or we understand now what people have always known, and that is how big of an impact on our bodies our emotional wounds can have. This guy could be literally paralyzed by guilt. Sometimes people are. And Jesus knows that to heal someone, excuse me, to get rid of that ugly, poisonous weed that's growing in their life, you've got to get all the way down to the root of it and deal with that first. And as you really get all of it out, then you can fully take care of the problem once and for all. Is that why Jesus says your sins are forgiven? Or, or third and related, is it that religious people have always told this man that his sins have caused his paralysis? Have they blamed him? Has he internalized this blame and come to view himself as a worthless sinner? Is that why Jesus very intentionally speaks the wonderful news to him that his sins are forgiven? Or fourth, is it because this guy couldn't go to the temple like most other people did, to have 
his sins forgiven. This man can't likely travel all the way to Jerusalem. He's, I don't know, 60, 100 or more miles away. They have no cars back then. There are no paratransit services yet. And even if he could get there, the blind and lame were forbidden from offering sacrifices at the temple. So this man has no way to get his sins forgiven. So regardless of which of these reasons it is, or if it's some combination of the four, this poor guy is stuck in his guilt and quite possibly paralyzed by his guilt and by his sin. And so Jesus speaks to him the amazingly good news. Your sins are forgiven. And this was amazing news for this man. Question, is it good news for you too? Is it good news for you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? That's why he came. Jesus came offering God's forgiveness for everyone's sins. You know, what I find as someone who's been hanging around Jesus for years and who's heard a million times that Jesus forgives my sins, I can begin to take it for granted. And to lose sight of how amazing it is. And and how much I need it. How much I need forgiveness. And if you're like that too, I encourage you to do what I've been trying to do this past week. And that is reminding myself. And meditating afresh on what good news it is. That Jesus has authority on earth to forgive my sins. Is there anything you need forgiveness for? Anything you're having trouble forgiving yourself for? Is there anything others are condemning or accusing you for? And you need some strength and some encouragement not to receive those condemning messages. Jesus alone has authority on earth. To forgive you. No matter who you are. No matter what you've done. And what that means is. We'll forgive you too. Because this is the good news of the gospel. And we. Are a gospel people.